Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Buddy Darden, what a pleasure to know that I'm going to get to spend the rest of this show talking to you about your life and your career. We love having you here, obviously, as a panelist on Political Rewind, but now the focus is on you. Well, Bill, I'm very honored to be here, but as I was saying before, I really ought to be interviewing you because I've watched your career ever since (laughs) you came to Georgia, and you and I have had our great moments together. Yes, and we're going to talk about some of of those as we move forward, but let's just go back a little bit and, and start with your roots in Georgia before we get into the political side of your life. You grew up in Hancock County. Tell everybody who isn't familiar with it where Hancock County is. That's right. Hancock County uh, is about halfway between Macon and Augusta. It's on the fall line. And uh, back in the pre-Civil War days, it was an agricultural center and a center of uh, great wealth. However, it has deteriorated quite a bit, and now it is probably among the poorest counties in the state of Georgia. But I had a great time growing up there on a dairy farm. Near Sparta? Yes, Sparta's the county seat, and we lived out from Sparta going uh, toward Warrington. It's funny you call it the fall line, uh, and we know what that is, of course. For There are people who don't. It, it's where the sea receded uh, when, when in, in whatever Prehistoric time. Prehistoric period. And the landscape changes dramatically as you cross the fall line from what people are used to seeing in, in north and middle Georgia. Yes, it does, and it's a separation between all types of Issues such as the North Georgia Conference and the South Georgia Conference of the Methodist Church. Congressional districts change uh, there. It's generally between where North Georgia uh, ends and South Georgia starts. It's uh, where the area code used to be 404 in North and 912 in the South. (laughs) Everything really in the state is divided right at the fall line. Uh, One of the reasons I wanted to mention the fall line itself specifically is that it goes by another name for politicians. Uh, yes, the net the line. The net line. And, and tell everybody the story about the net line and, and why that becomes uh, of some importance to politicians campaigning in that part of the state. Well, my cousin Larry Walker, by the way, a state representative, former state representative, Board of Regents member from over in Perry, has uh, done two books, not just one, but two books about the net line and it's, it's saying and so forth. But politicians used to say that uh, they weren't interested in any votes above the net line. That's where all the political power of the state was back during the county unit. Yeah, and if you were running for statewide office and so traveling the whole state, uh, it was also said that you had to learn the technique of giving a speech and blowing gnats at the same time. That is absolutely <laughs> correct, but everybody knew it because, frankly, nobody from North Georgia ever got elected anything back then. <laughs> so as a young man growing up uh, in Hancock County, were there uh, were there statewide campaigners who came through that you remember as a boy or was that not on your radar when you were growing up on the farm? Oh, yes, I do. In fact, I remember when Marvin Griffin was elected uh, to the governorship and he chose as his Speaker of the House one Marvin E. Moat, who served as Speaker of the House during the Marvin Griffin administration. And in those days, as you recall, the uh, governor selected the Speaker of the House. And, well, the House, of course, elected him, but the governor had his choice, which was always uh, ratified. And so in the seventh grade, I got the opportunity, along with two other seventh graders, to come to Atlanta to serve as a page for the speaker, Marvin E. Moat. And can you believe that is three seventh graders? We came to Atlanta, stayed by ourselves, unchaperoned at a hotel over in Five Points, and walked to the Capitol every day. <laughs> um so you were born in 1943. November 22nd, yeah. 1943. Which meant that, and were you, how old were you when you started paying attention to politics, really? I mean, you talk about this experience coming up to be a page, so that must have put it on your radar screen. That was pretty much the first time uh, when I paid attention to politics. I do remember in 1954 riding on the school bus when I heard that the Supreme Court of the United States had ruled in Brown versus Board of Education that the schools would be 
integrated. However, that meant very little to us because it was not until 1968. And by the time I had finished high school, gone to Washington and law school before the schools in Hancock County were ever integrated. Because, as we know from history, the decision was made in 54, but it was not enacted in many states. It, it was resisted for a long time by any number of states. In fact, the court came back in like 56, I think, and said, no, no, we were serious. You have to integrate. That still didn't make it happen. Right. That's one early memory that I think is relevant to this. When I was um, on the farm, my dad decided it would be great to take a trip to the Georgia State Fair in Macon. And it was during uh, the Eisenhower election of 1952. And my dad was somewhat of a closet Republican, even though there were no Republicans down in that area. But we went out to the park at the Macon, Georgia State Fair to hear a speech by either a governor or former governor of California who was speaking on behalf of Dwight D. Eisenhower. And every now and then he would say, Dwight D. Eisenhower and everybody would stand up and clap. And incidentally, that governor of California was Earl Warren, who would become a lot more famous. Chief so, Justice of the Supreme Court. Absolutely. So I guess that would be the first political event I ever remember attending. So um, as you, so you're you're born in '43. You uh, you remember the the school desegregation decision, uh, but you then were starting to grow into adulthood during the tenure of some of uh, Georgia's most, let's say, interesting, if not famous, uh, governors. Lester Maddox was governor of the state when you were a young man. Yes, that's correct. In fact, my my first recollection of a governor's race that was really contested was when Marvin Griffin attempted to come back, and he was defeated by this young whippersnapper, Carl Sanders, yeah. out of Augusta, and that was a big turnover. That was an extraordinary event in the state of Georgia, and not only did Sanders win the the uh, county unit vote, he won the popular vote. So everybody thought that Georgia was on the track to become one of the most progressive places in the world until four years later he was succeeded by Lester Maddox. Yeah. Um, two things that I'd love you to address. Uh, first of all, for people who don't know, what was the county unit system and why was it uh, so helpful in giving power to South Georgia rather than North Georgia? Well, as you know, uh, Georgia has 159 counties, which is the largest number of counties of any state in the union except for Texas. And at that time, the votes were apportioned among the counties so that the uh, uh, every county got two unit votes. And if you were in the um, intermediate crowd of about the uh, 10 most populated, you got, I believe, either three or four unit votes. And the most populous counties, uh, including Fulton County, got six-unit votes, as I recall. But the bottom line is uh, whoever carried the county got its unit votes so that your vote, if you lived in somewhere like tiny Glasscock County or Eccles County, uh, would be about 15 times the impact that it would be in the city uh, of Atlanta. So, as you know, on the case, I believe it was Westbury versus Sanders back around the um, mid-60s, the county unit uh, system was thrown out yeah, as a result of, of Baker versus Carr. The effect of the county unit system was to keep South Georgia political leaders in office for most— Well, not just South Georgia, well, but North Georgia as well, because— But not Atlanta. Counties, but but not the main thing is to keep it away from Atlanta yeah. and Macon and Augusta and Columbus and Savannah. When— um, where were you when Lester Maddox was elected governor? Where were you living, and what was your life all about in those days? All right, all right. To my my surprise, I was finishing the University of Georgia. That would have been 1966, and I was in my third year of law school, and I was also serving as a campaign manager for a guy by the name of Congressman Robert G. Stevens, and a wonderful man, Robert G. Stevens, Jr., and uh, he was an incumbent congressman, and I managed his campaign, which really didn't require much because uh, he ran against uh, a Augusta Republican who he, he uh, beat, beat quite handily. But in, that, in those days, to our great surprise, uh, everyone thought that former Governor Ellis Arnold would be, would be the Democratic nominee. 
and a young man by the name, young congressman by the name of Howard Bo Calloway was running on the Republican yeah. side. And nobody thought that Calloway had a real chance until Maddox ended up being the nominee. And then, of course, uh, you know, under Georgia law, as you know, you have to have a majority of the votes. And Governor Arnold came back in after losing the primary, came back in as a write-in candidate. And so he got enough votes to put it in a runoff between Lester Maddox and uh, Bo Calloway. And in those days, in those days, the Constitution provided that the legislature would, in, would in fact, decide the race if uh, no one got a majority of the votes. And so the big issue then was how would the Georgia legislature, which was overwhelmingly Democratic, uh, vote uh, as, as governor? But the deal was made, and it's one of the historic deals in the state of Georgia politics. The deal was made is that the legislature would all go along with Maddox, even though he was quite unpopular in, in some areas where Democrats were elected. They would go along with him and elect him governor if they would permit him, permit the legislature itself to pick its own speaker. So that's how we uh, ended up getting a speaker who was elected by the House itself with no influence from the governor. One of the reasons I'm interested in uh, where you were during Lester Maddox's tenure is I wondered how you grew up in Hancock County. Uh, were you all—was your family, were you progressive Democrats? Did you Were you enlightened Democrats in that part of the state so that when Lester Maddox came along, you were troubled by uh, his segregationist— uh, policies uh, about some of the uh, more racially uh, uh, divisive things that he was doing. H how did you respond to that? We were a divided family, of course. I was in law school thinking I was somewhat enlightened, but I voted for Ellis Arnold. My uh, father voted for Bo Calloway uh, because he couldn't stomach Maddox, but my mother couldn't stomach any Republicans, so she voted voted for Maddox. <laughs> she was a so, true yellow dog so, Democrat. Exactly. She was. She and ever, and ever since the war, because she had grown up under some very difficult circumstances, and and uh, remembered remembered uh, FDR and what the Democrats had done. So we were a somewhat of, of a family family divided, but that was the beginning right then right, of the independent speaker of the House of Representatives in Georgia. How did it raise your consciousness about race relations in Georgia? Luckily, luckily, I came along at a time after a lot of the decisions had been made. I was at North Georgia College, a military school, the year that Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter, mm -hmm. now Galt, uh, were the first two African-Americans admitted. And to the University of Georgia. To the University of Georgia. And it seems kind of silly now, but uh, there had to be uh, a court order uh, bringing them there. And then there were actual riots on the University of Georgia campus. Yeah. Luckily, I avoided that by being off in military school uh, up, in, up in North Georgia in Delonica that, that first year. But I look back on it, and it seemed uh, to me— uh, almost silly that, that that would be a problem problem there. In Hancock County, by the way, we had a, a, a minority white population and a large majority black population, but we at that time pretty much got along. And uh, I grew up uh, on our farm. We had uh, four uh, African-American families that lived on the farm and worked with us every day. And so... Uh, in those, in those days, really, we didn't think that much about it. That was just the way things were, that they went to separate schools and that went to separate churches and li lived separate lives. And I look back on it now uh, with a, cert a certain degree of, of consternation that the system existed as it did. So, you know, one of the first books I read when I moved to uh, Georgia in 1983, the book that was recommended to me, was uh, Feral Sam's. Run with a horseman. Feral Sam's grew up down in South Georgia on a farm in very much the same circumstances you're talking about. Uh, lots of African American uh, families who were sharecroppers around him. And then it's a phenomenal novel because it talks about the very change in the times that you're discussing. Um, the young man, who probably was only a little older than you in the novel, 
is much more enlightened than his father. And for people out there who have never read that book, it's really a powerful way to go back and look at that history of Georgia as we were changing as people. Yes, we were. I was fortunate enough to get to know Dr. Sams uh, before his death, along with his his um, spouse, who was also a physician. And, of course, they lived down in Fayetteville. Fayetteville he was the sole county. county commissioner of, I don't remember what county it was. And but. he was just a great man. Yeah. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I read all three of his books, uh, yeah. by, by the way. We call it the trilogy, and, and uh, I, I think I'm a better person for it. Uh, but he was a... And also, he dabbled in politics yeah. in the city council yeah. down there, and uh, he was very highly regarded. Incidentally, his son now, Judge Fletcher Sams, is uh, still on the bench yeah. down in the Flint circuit. Uh, before we have to take a break, uh, where when did you first look, where did you, where did you first hear about this guy Jimmy Carter? First heard about this guy Jimmy Carter when Maddox was running. Yeah. Actually, he came over to the University of Georgia and uh, impressed a whole lot of us. In fact. A guy named Fred Cooper, who ended up being one of the a former roommate of mine, ended up being one of the great Republicans. Flowers the, Bakery. Flowers Bakery had him over, and we all were real impressed with uh, with, with Jimmy Carter. And uh, of course, as you know, the first time he ran for governor, he ran way on down down the list. But uh, he came back with a roar four years later. Were you when he came back? And won in 1970. 1970, he defeated Carl Sanders yep. in the Democratic primary. Yeah. Were you a Carl Sanders man in that race? Absolutely. Yeah. I had uh, gone to Cobb County by then. I was assistant DA. And my uh, boss, the district attorney, Ben Smith, was a Carl Sanders appointee. And you better believe we were for Carl Sanders. <laughs> and not only that, though, Carl Sanders had been a good governor, a progressive governor, an outstanding governor. And... Ironically enough, Carter ran to his right, yeah. very far to his right. He, he ran essentially a campaign that he has later said he regrets. He ran a somewhat racist campaign. And then, as we've discussed on this show, having run that uh, kind of campaign in his inaugural speech, made, made history and the front page of The New York Times for saying it's the day of segregation is over. It's a new South. And it was an extraordinary moment in Georgia history. It was. To his eternal credit, and I was there, he had had a 180 on the race issue. And uh, even though it caused him a lot of pain and, and difficulty, uh, he believed it was right. And he did what he thought was right. And I'll always admire Jimmy Carter for having the political courage to do something uh, that he thought was right, even though it was very unpopular at the time. Jimmy Carter could not have been reelected governor in the state of Georgia, no doubt about it. How did it appear to you as you watched this uh, early stages of this presidential campaign unfold, this unknown figure in national politics suddenly finding himself, deciding I'm going to run for president, the peanut brigade, heading up to New Hampshire to campaign for him. What were your observations in those days? Did you think it was a, a foolish quest? Was he Don Quixote? Let's go back a little bit before the peanut brigade and people began to take the campaign seriously. I don't think uh, President Carter would mind my saying that most people in Georgia regarded his campaign for the presidency as a joke. And Reg Murphy, I never will forget an editorial he wrote about Jimmy Carter in the front page of the if, uh, editorial page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, in which he just lambasted Carter not only for being an ineffective governor, but for being on an ego trip that uh, would come to no good end. So, uh, actually, you probably know this, but the Georgia legislature, in order to aid uh, President Carter, actually moved the primary later on to give him a chance to get up ahead of steam. And, of course, by the time the Georgia primary came along for president, uh, I believe it was in May or something like that, of course, he got all the votes. And it turned out to be a great source of pride for Georgia to have its native son running for president. So he went from uh, almost zero popularity to almost universal popularity in Georgia as a result of this campaign. Tell you what, buddy, let's uh, pause for a minute. we got to get a break in uh, right now. And um, when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about when I first met you in your first race for Congress. We'll do that. Uh, this is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. 
You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Today, between 2 and 2.35, he's appearing on Georgia Public Broadcasting Channel on a show called Political Rewind. When U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson wanted to vent his anger over President Trump's attacks on John McCain, he did it on only one broadcast news show, Political Rewind. It's deplorable what he said. It will be deplorable. You can keep up with the latest in state, local, and national politics by listening live Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 2. I'm Taylor Gann, GPB's Morning Edition producer. I've had the chance to cover the full spectrum of sports in Georgia, including women's basketball, the NCAA National Championship, and Atlanta United, who won the city's first pro championship since 1995. All different people all come together in these games, and it really just represents all of Atlanta. And I think it means a lot to the entire city to have something like this. We bring you the latest on sports right here on GPB. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Buddy Darden, who we know from all the social media posts that we see when we're doing Political Rewind, when we pay attention to what you all out there are saying, uh, Buddy, you're one of the most popular panelists on the show, let's face it. Well, I'm retired now, and I can't do any more damage, and yeah. I've outlived most of my enemies. Like Strom Thurmond, I can say that. In the fall of 1983, I moved to Atlanta from Chicago to go to work for WSB-TV Channel 2 uh, as their political reporter. Uh, the first campaign I covered involved you. And let me set it up just briefly, and then you'll talk about it. The congressman in the 7th congressional district in, at that time period was Larry McDonald, one of the most conservative, some would say outrageous members of the U.S. House— and people may or may not remember, Larry McDonald was on Korean Air Jet 007, which was shot down, presumably by mistake, by the Russians. He was killed, although there were those conspiracy-minded Americans who thought that McDonald was the target of, of the Russians. And so a special election was called to replace McDonald, and you ran against Larry McDonald's widow, Kathy McDonald. It was an extraordinary time, Bill, because I was serving in Georgia State Legislature at the time. I was in a law firm, uh, Altrin Park out in Marietta. I'd already made my quota for the year, and uh, I looked around, and I was hoping that my good friend Roy Barnes would run, but no one would take on the widow. Roy decided not to do it. Uh, Joe Mack Wilson, a revered state rep, uh, wouldn't run for it. Uh, we were also looking, trying to find a candidate, and Al Burris, well thought of, a uh, businessman. These are all part of that Cobb County all mafia. All Cobb County mafia. And uh, Joe Thompson, who was a Democrat at the time and state senator, everybody passed on it because they thought that it would just be automatic for the widow to be uh, elected to take a husband's place because a widow had never been defeated before. And it was further complicated by the fact that Governor Harris was a good friend of Congressman McDonald. And so after his plane went down on September 1, 1983, they opened qualifying on September the 15th for an election to be held on October the 17th with a runoff three weeks later. So it was all set up for Kathy McDonald to be installed. But it got the going around. Everybody was saying, well, she's going to win, but I'm not going to vote for her. And so I was able to, uh, as a member of the General Assembly, I did not have to, at that time, give up my seat. The resign-to-run law had been passed but not enacted, so I was able to slide under there without giving up my legislative seat. I was able to, uh, to run for it. And so 20 people qualified to run in that race, a lot of them being uh, paupers and all kinds of crazy folks going on, but there were three serious candidates in the race. Uh, the widow, uh, Kathy McDonald, 
a guy by the name of David Sellers, who had been the previous Republican nominee uh, from a year past, and hopefully myself. And then there were 17 also-rans, for lack of a better word. And uh, that's when you came on the scene. Yeah. How did you beat her, uh, given well, all the advantages she seemed to have? Well, for, first of all, um, she really uh, defeated herself. She went on uh, TV immediately after it happened, flew to New York to be on the Today Show, and uh, blamed it all on the communists and how he was a target, you know, of of, uh, of the Russians and and so forth and, and so on. And her conduct was, a lot of people seem to think, was not consistent with a grieving widow. Secondly, she was not a uh, first wife. He had met her after he went to Washington. She was actually a third wife. And uh, McDonald had been uh, embroiled in several domestic controversies with previous wives before that time, which was pretty much uh, well known. And also, I was lucky. I had, uh, had uh, the Georgia House, the Georgia political establishment in the Georgia House, and especially, especially Speaker Tom Murphy behind me. And um, I was able to get in a runoff um, on the first election. I had uh, 30, excuse me, I had 27.5% of the vote. Uh, Ms. McDonald had 30, and then David Sellers, a Republican, had 25%. It was a nonpartisan special election, so everybody could vote in the same election. They call it a jungle primary these right. days, I think. But at the same time, I had uh, all the area from the Chattahoochee River to the Chattanooga city limits, including all of Cobb County. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I had been representing a, a multi-member district out in Cobb County, which really included one-fourth of the people in the in the. So you had some of district. your own advantages in that race. I did, but, and I didn't even realize but, it until I got in uh, kind of at the last minute. I, I was for Juan L. Edwards. Juan L. Edwards was the chairman of our party. But a her, very colorful figure wonderful, in Georgia Democratic party. politics. Absolutely. <laughs> But her son, Randy, who's a lawyer in Smyrna now, her son, Randy, was playing um, linebacker for, for Bear Brown over in Alabama that fall, and she didn't want to miss the football game. So she told me she would pull out in favor of me if I, if I would run. So, so that, that was so – I guess I owe, my, I owe my congressional seat to uh, Bear Brown. Yeah. And, and, what, what, right. what were the issues that were, were current in that campaign? Do you remember a couple of them? Current issue was I was from the district. I was homegrown. Uh, I had been elected in elected politics, both as district attorney and uh, state rep in Cobb County. So I had a base. Did you have to run on any national issues on current events or very, policy? Very few national okay. issues. It was mainly okay. a, pers a personal thing. Uh, she ran a national campaign, uh, John Birch-oriented kind of uh, campaign. And uh, I was the default candidate. Yeah. And so I've, I've got to be very candid with you when I say that that uh, all these people who were against her, especially in the runoff, uh, flocked to me. Okay. I had the conservative Democrats. I had the labor unions. I had. And here's one interesting thing, Bill. I think I've mentioned this to you before. In the legislature, the uh, early in the year, I was only one of uh, 53 Democrats of 53 members of the House of Representatives who voted for the Equal Rights Amendment. And I was told that that was the end of my political career right there. But the people uh, who supported ERA came out of the woodwork. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, that was a big deal, too. So I had all of these disparate groups all together under one tent. And so I ended up, after getting in a runoff three weeks later on November the 7th, 1983, I won with about 60 percent of the vote. Speaker of the House when you got to Washington was? Speaker of the House was the beloved Tip O'Neill. What a wonderful man. Everybody knows how he said all politics is local, but uh, I, I really, one of the most lovable and and best politicians I've ever known. Well, you know, it's interesting because, as I said, I moved down here in the fall of 1983 and uh, began hearing a line that I'd never in my life thought about in uh, Chicago. Uh, people, and you probably got this thrown at you in your campaign. The line was, the first vote 
that that candidate will cast if elected to Congress will be for Tip O'Neill for Speaker of the House. And as a Chicagoan, I thought, well, yeah, of course, because he's a great speaker. He wasn't necessarily received that way in the South in many cases. That's true, but I learned a valuable lesson by accident. Larry McDonald had declined to vote for Tip O'Neill when he began the Congress in which he was serving at the time of his death. And I had voted, of course, for Tom Murphy in the, in the Georgia, Georgia House. Kathy McDonald made a big point of saying how she wasn't uh, going to vote for Tip O'Neill. So I said, of course, I'm going to vote for Tip <laughs> O'Neill, the nominee of my party, if there's somebody else I want. And, and so I just immediately went ahead and made the right decision there by luck almost. But then it would never became an issue again because, as I told several people, who raised the Pelosi issue about what to do in this last election, of course you're going to vote for the speaker of your own party, and the people who are going to vote uh, against you for that reason, they're not going to vote for you anyway. Yeah. So uh, you always go with the leader of your party on uh, matters like that. And I think Lucy McBath found that out almost the hard way. So um, you served for 12 years. Basically. Actually, uh 11, 11 and a, a portion because my first my first term was a was a, por, uh, a term of about um, a year and and two months. All right. So and then the other five. Yeah. <laughs> uh, over that period of time, uh, we're not going to be able with the time we have to walk through uh, each term that you served. Talk, but talk to me about the things that were most memorable to you during your service in Congress? I was so fortunate, Bill, when I got elected because I came in November right before the Congress uh, was going to, going to adjourn, and I'm sitting there sorting through the mail one day, and this bird colonel comes up and uh, comes into the office, and I didn't know what to come to attention or, or what to do, but he had a card, and he said, son, would you give this to the congressman? And I said, well, I am. And, and I opened it up. It was, a, it was an invitation to the White House Christmas party from Ronald Reagan. And I thought to myself, I cannot believe this. I called my wife up. And I said, Lillian, we've been invited to the White House. And, of course, our first question was, what am I going to wear? But anyway, <laughs> so we went to the – that was my first big moment after being sworn in was going to the White House Christmas party with – uh, Ronald Reagan and seeing Strom Thurmond and Ted Kennedy and all these people I'd heard of and all all uh, my life and so that was that was a great memorable event. The next memorable event too I think of occurred the first day, because when I was an elevator operator under Senator Richard B. Russell's patronage, you couldn't go here, you couldn't go there, and so forth. And all of a sudden, I was a congressman. I came up the first date, and people appeared to act like they know me, and uh, I could go anywhere, walk anywhere, walk behind any door, walk onto the floor, walk onto the Senate floor, walk onto the House floor, and it, the liberating feeling of, of, of doing that. But I had, as I said, I had six great terms, and I feel totally blessed, and there's another feeling I've always had about public service, and that's gratitude. I was so lucky and so grateful to the people, you know, who gave me the opportunity to do it. Having come up there in 83 and leaving, and we'll talk about when that happened, in 95, you basically served in Congress with a Democratic majority in the House, but always under Republican presidents. Well, not always. Uh, what happened? Well, no, that's well, first, right. Of first course, of all, Clint, Clinton came along. Right. I'm sorry. I had I had um, full term of uh, second term of Reagan, which I served, President Reagan, which I served, and Remember that inauguration, which was brought in, it was so cold, yep. it had to be in, yep. in the uh, rotunda of the Capitol. Then uh, President Bush, uh, President George Bush, the first George Bush, came in, and I served uh, during his entire, his entire term. And then, of course, the third uh, president was Bill Clinton. Yeah, and I, was, I apologize, of course. Oh, no Clinton problem. came in in January of 93, right. so the last well, I had two three years, presidents. Yeah. I, served, I served under three presidents and under three speakers, uh, Tip O'Neill. Retired, and then Jim Wright became speaker, and he and immediately started fighting it out with Newt Gingrich. So that's that's another story. And then he was succeeded uh, in beginning of '93 by Tom Foley, who was a 
very good and decent man. So all three speakers were different, but I got along with all of them. What, for a Democrat in the House, again, with a Democratic majority through all this, but a Republican president for most of it, when you finally had a Democratic president in the White House, did it did life change for you in, in the House uh, with a Democrat in office, or did things pretty much continue as they had been? It certainly did, Bill, because when President Reagan was in office and President Bush was in office, I could occasionally vote uh, when I thought that their proposals were good and right and go along with them, and I would be considered bipartisan and, and the staunchest Democrats would, would understand. And so I had, a, I had had a great, great situation there being a conservative Democrat in, uh, under Republican administration. So uh, I was able to walk, walk the line pretty, pretty well. But then it got to be more difficult when we had a president of our own party. And when I voted uh, with the president of Reagan, when I voted with President Bush, I was bipartisan and statesmanlike. But then when I voted with my own party, if I thought my own party was right, then, of course, uh, I got a lot of criticism for it. But that's part of it. And uh, I never regretted it. I cast, as you might recall, you and I talked about this before, a couple of controversial votes that I believe were the right votes. It might have been costing me my job. It might not have. But the important thing is what were what, the what were the votes that you cast that you feel well were president clinton's economic plan yeah. uh was, was one and another one i voted for the brady bill yeah. and uh which incidentally president ronald reagan also supported uh voted for the brady bill which i still think uh is is good law i believe certainly in the, in the right to bear arms uh in the second amendment but like other rights uh it is not absolute and unlimited and um i voted for nafta NAFTA was uh, at the creation of George Bush the first, and then uh, was was taken up by President Clinton. And on the recommendation of uh, President Carter, I voted for NAFTA. I thought it was the best best deal at the time, and that became controversial over the people toward the left side of the political. Hey, before, equation. before we got to get to another break, let me ask you a couple questions um, about your th- th- that transition. Uh, number one, when uh, President Clinton, then governor of Arkansas, announced his campaign, you as sitting member of Congress, whoever you endorsed would be a, a significance. Uh, you were were you with Clinton from the start? I don't remember that. Yes, I was with Clinton from the start. We knew each other through Sam Nunn through the Democratic Leadership Council. And uh, we had met on several occasions and spent some time together. I remember we had ridden a train one time from uh, Washington to Williamsburg, Virginia, and had a long conversation. This is right after he had appeared uh, on Johnny Carson blowing the saxophone. But and yeah, so Arsenio we, Hall, not Johnny Carson, uh, by the uh, way, but okay. go ahead. <laughs> All right. But, but th- thank you for the correction. There. But, but anyway, wherever it was, uh, yeah. we got a big laugh about that. Yeah. And, and he was more my age. Actually, he's a little younger than I am. And so we, we hit it off. We hit it off real well. And, and at that time, he and Sam Nunn were pretty good, good friends. Chuck Robb, uh, former uh, governor of Virginia, and Linda Johnson's son-in-law, we we were all in the Democratic Leadership Council together. Which we should remind people was an effort by Southern Democrats, particularly primarily, to find a more conservative path that Democrats could take uh, so they could maintain uh, uh, some uh, hold on voters down here. And, and that was an important development. That's what helped propel Clinton to the White House. That is, that is correct. And Sam Nunn was one of the big architects yeah. of that. Yeah. And I think uh, made a great contribution in, in that area. Right. So on the other end of all this, in the 1994 election comes along, an off-year election, it's the election in which Newt Gingrich, uh, sixth district congressman, Hope to nationalize the election in some way by by coming up with the contract for America, which many Republican candidates could use uh, as platforms across the country. And it became a tsunami. The night of that election, I will never forget, buddy. Uh, Bob Barr came in and he took uh, the seat. It had been changed, and, right. but it was still the seat that you'd been occupying. The Republicans won 60 seats that night. It launched Newt Gingrich to the next Speaker of the House. It was, and the incumbent Speaker, Tom Foley, even Foley lost, lost his seat out in Washington State. What do you recall about your feelings that night? Well, I didn't think I was going to get beat. Uh, frankly, uh, when— uh, 
Dr. Brenda Fitzgerald was defeated by Bob Barr in the primary. I thought I was going to make it because she was very popular, and she was, I think, would have been uh, even a more formal candidate than than, uh, Congressman Barr turned out to be. But in any event, uh, I thought I would squeak by. I knew it'd be tight, and I'd lose some votes. But I was surprised that I lost, but at the same time, uh, I, I was, had a lot of company. There were, like you say, about 60 of us that, that lost. And I know we'll forget going down and having a session with President Clinton with all that group. But that's probably a story for another time. But in any event, just like this, this past fall, we had a big turnover. The, the midterm on the president's first term can be devastating. It was to President Obama. It was to President Clinton. It was to President Trump. And so that's part of it. And I don't think it was a specific vote as much as the national mood changed. And uh, I got swept in the tide. And you can't take these things personal because that's just the way it happened. Boy, that's hard. It's hard. It's hard. (laughs) But I found out a long time ago, and I'm a lot better. This is the only thing I'm better at than my wife, is that uh, I can forgive and forget and move (laughs) forward because you you can't let you can't let past disputes or problems uh, color your thinking or your attitude because if you don't, uh, it will it will completely consume you. But I always look forward, and once it's over, it's over, and you move on. All right. We've got to move on to a second break in the show. Uh, I'm talking to Buddy Darden. We're going to continue our conversation after we take uh, this brief break. Stay with us on Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, Terry talks to Nathaniel Rich about his book, Losing Earth, A Recent History. It's about climate change and the years between 1979 and 1989 when he says we may have had a chance to solve the problem and what went wrong. They also discuss where we are now. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 right here on GPB. You can also listen live online at gpbnews.org. Stand with the facts. My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner, and I've seen decades of misconceptions about the South from the Beverly Hillbillies on down. In our podcast with GPB, we challenge those stereotypes and paint a very different picture of the American South. You can subscribe to The Bitter Southerner podcast for free at gpb.org slash podcasts. At the border of Colombia and Venezuela, young men sell intricate paper crafts, swans, trucks, all woven out of worthless Venezuelan currency. I never thought or imagined I'd work with bolivares, but since people were throwing the bills away and they were worthless, I started using them to make crafts. I'm Ari Shapiro. We look at why Venezuela's currency collapsed this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us for All Things Considered with Cindy Hill this afternoon from 4 to 7. Our guest today on Political Rewind is former Congressman Buddy Darden. He was the assistant district attorney and then the district attorney in Cobb County. He went on to become a U.S. congressman for uh, almost 12 years and uh, served in the state legislature and uh, has had a remarkable career as as an individual, as a political leader. Buddy, I want to go back to in your story and pick up something that uh, I think was profoundly important to you. You first went to Washington as a young man. Uh, You had won a uh, place. uh, You explain it. You didn't actually work for Richard Russell, one of the legendary Georgia U.S. senators, but it was because of him you got a job in Washington. No, what actually happened was that I was— under the auspices of the Georgia 4-H Club, I was awarded a patronage position for Richard B. Russell in Washington. So I went to Washington along with my friend Mel Wells, and we uh, went to Washington, went to school there, lived there, had a patronage position for a year, my sophomore year in college. So I'd left North Georgia College and went up there. And I thought I was running the world at, at the time because Senator Russell was revered uh, in the United States Senate, uh, and whatever he said went. And so if you told people that you were there working for Richard Russell, any, anybody from the lowliest 
lowliest policeman to Lyndon B. Johnson, who I actually told that one time, stood back in, with, with some awe. And so what Russell did, we didn't have interns. They, don't, they have interns now coming out of the ears. But what Russell did was he would uh, give us a water seats passenger's jobs, easy jobs over in the capital where we'd get paid. Uh, we'd go to school part-time, and then we'd come to the office and fold mail and run errands and drive him a little bit, Among whatever other he needed done. Among yeah. other things, you were an elevator operator in the U.S. Senate. Best job I ever had. <laughs> um, there was a great moment for you as a young man. Uh, John F. Kennedy was president of the United States, and you had an experience on the night of a State of the Union address. Well, it wasn't a night because in those days we had the State of the Union in the afternoon, okay. and so the Senate convened, and they were going to march over to the House chamber as they normally did, and I was told by a good friend just to step in line right behind the Senate, wear a blue, blue suit, and so I just walked right in uh, with the permission of the Capitol Police and on the floor and heard John F. Kennedy's last State of the Union address in the afternoon in January of uh, 1963, and when it was over, of course, no, we're not on TV, so you didn't have all these people lining up. So I grab an aisle seat. Exactly, yeah. the aisle seats. None of that. None <laughs> of that. And I went up, waited about ten minutes, and shook hands with John F. Kennedy, and and, uh, and talked with him just very briefly, of course. And then went off to the side and saw Senator Russell, who was just astounded to see me in that in that uh, in that chamber. But uh, what a great moment I had, and uh, that's indicative of the many experiences I had, both as, as an employee and then later on as a congressman, to, to get to know all of these people that I had read it, about or heard about. It's interesting that Bill Clinton, of course, also has a Kennedy experience when we, there was a photograph uh, that was circulated during his first campaign of him shaking, uh, being in a group with President Kennedy. So you went through that, too. But there's an irony here. You were born on November 22nd. That is correct. Uh, that was 1963 when I shook his hand, went back to the University of Georgia, and on my birthday yeah. of 1963, the day I turned 20 years old, I learned that he had been shot in Dallas. And then when we got into class after a few minutes, uh, someone informed the professor that he had, he had died and, of course, class was dismissed. And, Bill, the world stopped in the afternoon of November 22nd, yeah. 1963. The world stopped. Yeah, it must have been especially devastating for you having shaken his hand, having this happen on your birthday. I, I think about that with you sometimes. Yes, that's, that's, that's one, one of the uh, memories of my, of my life that, like I say, that always, always uh, comes along at least once a year, if, uh, if not more often. But again... I, I think how fortunate I've been, uh, the places I went, the things I did. Uh, I've been virtually not everywhere in the world, but all over the world representing the people of Georgia and the Defense Committee. Incidentally, if you saw the movie Charlie Wilson's War, I was on Charlie Wilson's subcommittee. I travel, and my wife and I travel with Charlie Wilson. That's just a small <laughs> example of it. I remember the young, lanky, skinny uh, reporter that covered my first uh, election, Jim Galloway, who's grown <laughs> up since that time. Uh, but I've, I've had a myriad of experiences, uh, travel, literally travel the world from the South Pole to the North Pole to meet people, to participate in, in our government. And I am totally and abs absolutely positive about our formal government and our system. And I am more uh, convinced today than ever before that our system is the best, and I was just honored to be a small part of it. Well, and it's wonderful that you lead me into exactly the last couple of minutes uh, uh, that I wanted to, to talk about here. It's conventional wisdom. It's easy for people to look at politicians and uh, have generalized conclusions. They're corrupt. Uh, they don't really care about the people uh, who elect them. And, and there certainly are political leaders, there are politicians who do not live up to the best uh, of what we are as a people. But it strikes me, buddy, that the reality is, and you've seen them and known them, that there are some great, great people, men and women, who have dedicated themselves to public service over the years. And as a reporter, I've seen both sides of that. And right now, it's especially easy 
to be cynical about the politicians in our lives. But I would guess that you would be fall, come down on the side of great people rather than the, the mean-spirited or corrupt ones. That's correct. I met and worked with three presidents. Uh, I served under three different speakers. I was always in the majority, by the way, when I was in the House of Representatives. But I found out most of the people I dealt with uh, in, the, in the political world were trying to do the right thing. Uh, like any other area, whether it's law or broadcasting or whatever, uh, there are some uh, who are not as, as uh, ethical as others. There are some who are not as accomplished as others. But most, uh, most of them generally want to do the right thing and are conscientious about what they do. And most of them, like me, uh, consider it a great honor to serve. So as we conclude here, I want to one last thing about this. You've been doing political rewind for quite a long time now. I mean, we've been on the air five years. One of the things that always strikes me about our show is that um, and my wife has a line that she uh, quotes all the time, which is an enemy is a person whose story you don't know or you haven't yet learned. I think that political life, that we talk on Political Rewind every day with, with um, people of diverse backgrounds, diverse political beliefs, and yet it's always respectful conversation. It is, and it's very important because I've always said you ought to always listen to that other person and try to understand their opinion because there's a slight, ever so slight chance that they might be right. <laughs> well, Buddy Darden, we're uh, just about out of time uh, to talk with you, but I wanted to mention Political Rewind as we came to an end because it's been such a joy to have you over these past five years, the show's been on the air, uh, come in and be part of our panels. We always love having you here. Our listeners do, too. So uh, we may be t spending an hour with you today, uh, but I look forward to many more times that you're going to be in here as a panelist talking about the issues of the day. Well, like Schwarzenegger says, I'll be back, and I look forward to it. <laughs> uh, that's uh, former U.S. Congressman Buddy Darden. Um, we're just about out of time for today's show. Uh, if you're listening in real time to the show, we're in Athens, Georgia tonight recording Political Rewind and we'll play that show tomorrow, which we're doing in front of a live audience. So hope you'll join us for that. And for those of you who are up in Athens uh, waiting to see us tonight, we can't wait to get there. I'm Bill Nygut. That's all the time we have for today. See you again tomorrow for another Political Rewind.